This morning we have uh, the wonderful opportunity of welcoming to the pulpit Dan Jensen. Most of you who come to adult Sunday school already know Dan. Oh, there you are. Couldn't find you. I'm going, oh no, i got to preach. <laughs> Texts were flying through my head. Most of you uh, have, have heard Dan teach, and if you hadn't, you should go online and listen to his Sunday school classes. Dan is going through assessment for church planting in Atlanta, Georgia, for Mission to North America, that is, our church planting agency. And it is Dan's vision and heart and goal to plant a PCA church in St. George, Utah. Dan drives to Las Vegas, that drive, to teach us Sunday school, and today he's going to preach God's Word to us. And he's an effective communicator, and I know that he loves Jesus, and I'm happy for him to do that. He needs a recorded message, so at the end of it, stand and give him an ovation. No. <laughs> he doesn't want that. But he needs a recorded message to send to Atlanta so they can know he can preach his way out of a paper sack, and I'm sure he can. So, Dan, would you come and bring God's word to us? Thank, Thank you, Pastor. You. Thank you, brother. So, yeah, I love this church, but I got so sick of the drive, I was like, I better plant a church. So, no, I'm just kidding. Not at all, not at all. <laughs> uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to preach. Uh, what a privilege, um, but also what an awesome uh, and fearful responsibility. And I just pray, God, that I would um, do your word justice, um, that we would be edified today. Uh, fill me with your spirit. Fill the congregation with your spirit. And I pray that uh, um, I would be used of you to edify um, the congregation today. Um, I'm no prophet. I'm no apostle. I don't claim to be Lord. And so I know that I'll make mistakes as I preach today. But I pray, God, that you would give me the strength and the discernment um, based upon my preparation to be as close to your word um, and the articulation of it as possible. Thank you so much, God, for the Sabbath day. Um, and we just pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So if you look in the bulletin, uh, my topic for today is a doctrine known as the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so I'm going to go through three parts. Uh, the first is what is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit? Then we're going to talk about the power of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to talk about some ways we can uh, apply uh, the doctrine of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Um, real quick, if you guys could turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Anytime I read from Scripture today, as is my normal practice, I'll be reading from the ESV. So if you have another version, uh, go ahead and follow along, but it'll be from the ESV. So um, hopefully that'll be familiar to you. So this is, again, 1 John 5, 6 through 12. This is the Apostle John speaking, and he writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So you can see from this text, it refers to God's testimony on a number of occasions. Um, And in the early part, it talks about that this uh, testimony primarily comes from the Holy Spirit. It says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies. Now, um, there's some debate on what exactly John is talking about when he refers to water and blood here. Um, Any guesses as to uh, some of this debate? Some of you guys might know. Some think that it refers to when Jesus was pierced with the spear. Do you guys all obviously know that part of the story um, where water and blood flowed, proving that Jesus was, in fact, uh, dead, okay? Um, Others take the position that the water primarily refers to the baptism of Christ and the miraculous events surrounding the baptism, the Father's voice from heaven, um, but also the fact that the Holy Spirit came down upon him in a dove, and this was all obviously supernatural, and people witnessed this. Um, and that the blood refers to the entire sort of uh, passion of Christ, his, his suffering from start to finish, all right? And uh, the fact that, that he um, proved that he was the Messiah by going through all of these uh, types of things, all right? And that he did, in fact, die. Um, there is debate on that. I take the position that it is talking about the baptism and uh, the uh, passion of Christ. The reason is... Um, he so distinguishes the water. He says, you know, not the water only, whereas if with the piercing of the side, the emphasis is sort of on the water and the blood together. Does that make sense? All right, so I take that as uh, the, the better interpretation of this text. Regardless of that fact, regardless of which interpretation you're talking about, John is talking about that people witness these things. Whereas he's talking about the spear in the sight of Christ or the baptism and the events of the crucifixion that you had people, eyewitnesses, not just the apostles, credible people who saw this and they testified that these miraculous things took place, all right? And that's why he says, if we receive the testimony of men, okay, the testimony of God is greater. It is good to receive the testimony of men when it is credible, all right? So again, this passage and some of the the quotes that I'm going to give from the Westminster Confession of Faith um, and from John Calvin, they're not discounting general revelation. They're not discounting apologetics. They're not discounting the fact there is a lot of evidence for the fact that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah. There is a lot of evidence. I've been studying apologetics for 20 years. There's a lot of evidence for the fact that the Bible is the word of God, all right? And most of that evidence comes from the testimony of men, okay? People presenting historical, archeological, scientific, textual type of arguments. And we should accept that testimony where it is credible, okay? But John says the testimony of God is greater, all right? And the testimony that he's talking about here is that when God gives his special revelation, when God verbalizes his revelation, all right? And before the closing of the canon, what I mean by that is when the Bible was completed, okay, and all the books uh, are kind of brought together into one big book that we call uh, the Bible, God gave this um, uh, oral Uh, verbal revelation in many different ways, all right? We tend to forget that uh, special revelation did not always come only through Scripture, all right? Before the closing of the canon, it came through uh, visions, dreams, prophets spoke, apostles spoke orally uh, in, in fully authoritative ways. It was just as much the Word of God as Scripture. But eventually, okay, and I'm going to read from a passage in a minute from 2 Timothy, Eventually, God brought those uh, means to a close, all right? In the early part of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says that those means of God bringing forth, okay, uh, that type of revelation has ceased, all right? And therefore, as far as the verbal special revelation that we have today, we have Scripture and Scripture alone, all right? And that's why we believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura, okay? 
All right, and so he says, if we receive the testimony of men, okay, that's good, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Now, an important part here is he says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So there is a sense in which unbelievers are responsible for the fact that Scripture is out there. It is available. If they were to seek God, all right, God would present the Scriptures to them uh, and they could come to know them. So there is a sense in which we don't want to think of this verbal, special revelation testimony of God as being something different from that's given to unbelievers, all right? Now, there is a sense in which the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is only for believers, and I'm going to clarify this, so if this gets a little confusing, just track with me but it's still the same testimony. What I mean is this. When I get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, we're not saying that when you become a believer, God gives you a sixth sense. It's not like you have the Bible and then God sort of reveals to you by a voice or an intuition or something like that where he kind of whispers in your ear, the Bible's the word of God. That's not what we're saying, okay? That would really be adding revelation to scripture, all right? It's the same testimony, and if you look in the verse, he really holds believers and unbelievers responsible for this, all right? He says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, obviously referring to unbelievers, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son, all right? But then earlier, okay, um, <clears throat> Then earlier he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. It is your possession as a believer to have this testimony. So you might be going, what the heck? How does all this work? All right? What we're saying is it's the same testimony. It's the same Bible, same word of God. All right? It carries with it God's authority, God's power. The Bible is so transcendent that anybody with an open mind who comes to it and reads it should see that it is the Word of God. And in that sense, everybody has the testimony of Scripture. Even people who have never heard of the Bible. If they were to seek God, the Bible says in Acts, if they were to reach out for Him, they would find Him, and God would bring them the Scriptures. Okay? So in one sense, everybody has the testimony of Scripture. But in another sense in this verse, he says it only belongs to believers. What is he driving at? He's driving at the fact that when we become safe, when God regenerates us by the power of the Holy Spirit, he removes our moral barrier to accepting the scriptures so that now we receive them for what they are, which is the word of God. And that, in essence, is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Our problem with scripture is not a natural problem. It's not like the Bible speaks a different language. No, again, sometimes it might, and we need to translate it into people's languages, but that's not, it's not like it's, it's, it, uh, it's that people speak a different language or people don't have physical eyes to read it or ears to hear it. Our problem is not a natural ability problem. Our problem, when we're unbelievers, is a moral problem, what Jonathan Edwards called a moral inability to see the scriptures for what they are. And when God regenerates us, he removes that barrier, and then we see the Bible for what it is, all right? But you have to be careful, because a lot of people have this understanding of the internal testament of the Holy Spirit as it's sort of like this added revelation that God revealed to you that the Bible is the word of God, and that's not um, what we're saying. And, and the reason we say that is because if that were the case, unbelievers would not be responsible for this testimony, and clearly John in this passage holds them responsible, okay? So I hope that kind of makes sense, and I'm gonna give some analogies in a minute that I hope kind of break this down a little bit further. Um, you might be saying, okay, all, all sounds good and stuff like that. 
John uses a lot of words, testimony, Holy Spirit, and all this stuff in this verse. I don't see a lot about Scripture. Where are you getting that from, okay? Um, uh, it's not in your bulletin, but if you could turn quickly, all right, uh, to 2 Timothy 3.16, very famous uh, verse. says a lot about um, uh, sola scriptura. says a lot about the nature of inspiration. says a lot about inerrancy. A number of key doctrines that we hold to uh, regarding Scripture. <clears throat> so 2 Timothy 3.16 from the ESV. And I'll read it quickly. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I could focus on a lot of things from this text. It touches on a lot of key issues, but I'm going to mostly focus on the end part of this uh, verse, okay? Where it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, one of the things that's a little frustrating to me, okay, about this verse as it's translated into most English versions is most English versions kind of make a mess of it, and it's a little irritating. I think the reason is because in English, it comes off as a touch redundant, but the reason is Paul was being intentionally redundant. He's sort of packing on these terms to lay down the point. And if God is being redundant, we have no right to sort of say, I don't think we should be so redundant. All right? God doesn't need our help. All right? So in the NIV, for example, it leaves out the whole that the man of God uh, may be complete and just goes on, you know, say, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, the ESV says may be complete, but it doesn't say thoroughly. In the Greek, okay, just to be clear, it says that the man of God may be complete, and then it goes on to say thoroughly equipped for every good work, all right? And all of those words are extremely important, all right? That the man of God may be complete. To be complete means full. You don't need any more. Does that make sense, all right? This is a remarkable statement, all right? Paul is basically saying that we've reached a point in redemptive history when he was writing 2 Timothy, all right, where nothing else is needed for the man or woman of God uh, to be a godly person, okay, uh, as far as like our revelatory knowledge other than scripture, so what he's saying is those previous means, theophanies, angelophanies, Christophanies, visions, dreams, okay, all those types of things, or even oral prophecies from apostles and prophets are no longer required. And it's not an accident that 2 Timothy is one of the last books of the Bible to be written. Does that make sense? Okay, because we know in the early part of the New Covenant, those things were still in practice while Scripture is being written, but we see that those things are winding down. Pastors going over the book of Hebrews, in the first part of Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about, okay, that these different types of things, okay, were in the past. Does that make sense? All right, so there's a sense in which they wound down, and eventually all Scripture scripture is all that we need, okay? First John, the best evidence we have is that it was written after uh, uh, Second Timothy, okay, and therefore this doctrine clearly would have been in place. So when he talks about the testimony of God, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, he is clearly talking about Scripture, okay? Now, next thing is the content of this revelation. At the end, all right, he talks about what is the basic gist of this content, all right? And he says, uh, and, this, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What is the, the, the overarching gist of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation? It is the gospel. That is the theme of the Bible from beginning to end. Everything else serves the purpose of presenting uh, the gospel. All right? uh, obviously, John is sort of using a little bit of hyperbole here. He's sort of summarizing things. Obviously, the Bible touches on a lot of issues, but ultimately, it all points back to the gospel. It's sort of like when Paul says, I desire to know nothing except for what? 
Christ and him crucified. Obviously, the Bible talks a lot about things other than Christ and him crucified. But ultimately, he's saying that is the theme of Scripture, Christ and him crucified. The gospel is the theme of the Bible, all right? And that is why oftentimes we talk about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, we emphasize the fact that it also is referring to the fact that God is revealing to you that you are a child of God. And that is very uh, clearly presented in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the Holy Spirit has given us the spirit of adoption, whereby we know that we are uh, the sons uh, of God, all right? But again, be careful with this. It's not meant to be this something like, well, God's never came and told me that I'm a a child of God. God never came and personally revealed that to me. So how do I know that? What John is saying is, all right, if you have truly placed faith in Christ, all right, and if the Bible is the word of God and you know it's the word of God because of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, then you can know that you are a child of God based upon the truth of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, so the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit refers to the fact, all right, that God removes the barrier from our hearts so that we can see that the Bible is the word of God and it gives us an assurance, okay, beyond anything we can receive from general revelation, from apologetics, or any other human testimony. And the primary thing it reveals to us is the gospel and that you can know you are a child of God if you have truly placed your faith in Christ, okay? So that's sort of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell, And again, going back to what I said a moment ago, he said, whoever believes in the Son of God has, has this testimony in himself, all right? This is not like a sort of a maybe thing or a sort of or I really hope so, all right? And again, this can make a little bit, people a little bit nervous because they're like, you know what, Dan, I still have my doubts, all right? I'm going to talk about doubt in a little bit, all right? But there is a sense in which if we are truly saved, we have been truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we know, we know that the Bible is the Word of God, all right? And not just from apologetics, not just from evidences and all this stuff, all right? But because when the Bible speaks, we hear God speaking, all right? Okay, so uh, I'm going to give some analogies to kind of break this down in case some of that was a little fuzzy or maybe overly uh, technical. Um, The first one is I'm going to call it my nirvana analogy, all right? I know not everyone agrees with me on this, and that's totally okay. It's a matter of taste. Everyone has different tastes in music, all right? I'm a huge Nirvana fan. I'm a product of the 90s, okay? All right, I hope at least some of you uh, agree with me on that. Give me an amen or I got one right there. Okay, good, all right? Um, <clears throat> when I was in middle school, and I'm gonna embarrass myself big time, but in the process, I'm gonna embarrass my kids, which is always fun, so it's worth it, all right? So I'm gonna do that. Um, in about 1990, I was about sixth grade, all right? Uh, there was this dude that came on the scene, okay? All right, and he had like really high hair, all right, he wore weird like pants and stuff, and he was like the hip hop, you know, guru at the time. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? What's that? Vanilla Ice? Did somebody say that? Yes, okay. And I'm quite ashamed to say I was a Vanilla Ice fan, all right? Now, in my defense, all right, everybody at my school was a Vanilla Ice fan. If you were a sixth grader, okay, everybody listened to Vanilla Ice. And I wanted to be cool and I wanted to be popular, all right? So I went to parties and we listened to Vanilla Ice, all right? You couldn't, I see you laughing over there. Um, you couldn't pay me to listen to Vanilla Ice today, all right? <clears throat> but that was, that was kind of my thing at the time, all right? Around the same time, Nirvana came out, all right, and was hugely popular. Now, it was mostly popular with some of the older kids, at least where I grew up, okay, in sort of kind of wealthy uh, 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 Bay Area suburbia. So it was mostly the, the older siblings of my friends who were really into Nirvana. But Nirvana was big and popular around the same time. 
I didn't get Nirvana. It didn't make an ounce of sense to me, okay? Bashing guitars, okay, really loud drums. Um, what was this, this dude with, like, hair in his face? Um, and he wore, like, cardigans when he sang. Like, what is up with that? That is not really that cool, all right? Cardigans are lame, all right? And have you ever seen the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit? What is going on there? I mean, as a sixth grader who thought rap and, you know, vanilla ice and stuff was so cool, I didn't get it, all right? You got, like, this weird basketball court thing going on. You got smoke, and you got people with these weird A's on their cheerleader things, and then they go crazy, and then they tie up a janitor at the end, and whoa, this didn't make an ounce of sense to me, like, at all, okay? All right, but I grew up a little bit. I matured. Now, again, the analogy is imperfect because I know not everyone likes Nirvana. It's a matter of taste, okay? But again, as I matured, all right, it wasn't that Vanilla Ice changed. It wasn't that Nirvana changed. It was all the same, okay? Who changed in the process? I changed, all right? And that's sort of what we're getting at with the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's not that Scripture changes or God gives you some new revelation or tells you, you know, how great Scripture is, okay? He takes the spiritual blinders off, okay, so that you see uh, Scripture uh, for what it is, all right? Eventually, okay, as I got older into high school and sort of, you know, I was way past Vanilla Ice, all right? But I got more into rock and then I got more into alternative rock and then I started to listen to Nirvana and I was just blown away. I mean, it just completely sounded completely different to me. And the video was literally went from being something I didn't understand, like what is up with that, to just, I thought it was the coolest, most amazing thing ever. Because the whole point was about not being pretentious, not being lame, not being everything that kind of the vanilla ices uh, of the world were. It was kind of stumming its nose at all the sort of fakeness uh, of the world. And at the time, and I'm going to admit still to this day, I mean, I just find that very, very uh, appealing. I mean, some of the lyrics in Smells Like Teen Spirits, like albino, mosquito, and it's just random. And uh, like when I was in middle school, that made no sense to me. As I got older, I got what Kurt Cobain was trying to do with that, what he was trying to say with that, and it just blew my mind, okay? And a lot of that is like similar to how it is when we become Christians, right? We can look back at our past, we look back at our beliefs, and they made so much sense to us at the time. And now we look back at them and we're just like, I believed what? Like that, what on earth is going on there? And things in the Bible that just were so confusing to us, and was like, I could never believe that. That's so out there and so bizarre. That's what the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit does. It takes away those blinders so that you see Scripture for what it is, and it starts to make sense to you. Things that you would never have gotten, you're like, oh, I totally get that. God seems so angry in the Old Testament, that didn't make sense to me, but then I start to focus on all the passages about God's holiness about God's righteousness, about my sin. It makes sense that God would not be happy with me and with us as humankind, all right? He's not doing that because he's this big grumpy God. He's doing it because he's righteous uh, and he is holy. So again, my entire perspective sort of just shifted, all right? Um, uh, I was talking to Rose the other day, um, and she, she was asking me because we were kind of on this sort of music subject. Um, she was like, well, you know, you were, grew up in the alternative uh, rock uh, uh, phase. You know, what, what, there was this Marilyn Manson guy, you know, she was like, you know, what was up with that guy? And I don't know if you guys remember Marilyn Manson. He's a little out there, all right, to say the least, okay? And she was like, you know, what was it like growing up with, with that? And I was like, yeah, I remember he was on the MTV Music Awards, all right, and he had done his makeup where it looked like he had been crying, so it was like all dripping down his face, and he was wearing women's lingerie, and he was like pouring vodka on himself, and I was like, it was crazy, it was nuts, and, and she said, well, how did you deal with that or react to that? You know, I told her I wasn't saved at the time, 
but I, God was kind of working on my heart. I was going to church, I was exploring, I was trying to understand things, but there was a lot about the Bible that really confused me, didn't make sense to me. So I told her the story, I actually went to my, uh, the pastor at the time, again, I wasn't saved, but I used to go and bug him and ask him questions all the time, and I went up to the pastor and I said, okay, um, I was raised by awesome parents, but they're not believers, and I kind of described for them what my parents are like. I described, I said, my dad is hardworking, upstanding, makes good money, takes care of us, has always been there for me, always played sports with me, came to all my games, disciplines me when I, need to, when I needed to be disciplined growing up, but was totally there for me. And so let me get this straight. You're telling me that that dude that I saw on TV, Marilyn Manson, and my dad, they're, they're going to the same place. I mean, that's, that's, that's what you're getting at here? And he kind of tried to explain that to me. Uh, but again, at the time, that was just like, phew, that made no sense, all right? But at, once I became saved, all right, it's not that my view of my dad changed or Marilyn Manson changed, but I got the scriptural rationale. It made sense to me. I don't believe that my dad, unless, you know, he becomes saved, which I'm praying for, and I hope, and I hope you guys would pray for that as well, but if he doesn't become saved, um, I don't believe he's going to be in the same place in hell as someone like Marilyn Manson. There will be degrees of punishment. But nonetheless, okay, apart from Christ, we all deserve the wrath of God, all right? And I, over the, the course of, you know, really studying the scriptures and walking with the Lord for 20 years, I get it now. Is it a doctrine I like? No. Is it a doctrine I enjoy? All right, no, of course not. Um, but again, I accept it because the Bible says it and therefore I'm obligated to believe it, all right? And that can only come from the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, breaking down those moral barriers that we have to Scripture. We want Scripture to say what we want. We want Scripture to say what we like. We want Scripture to tell us things that's going to be acceptable to our culture so that our culture doesn't make fun of us so much, that our culture accepts us, all these types of things, okay? But God won't do that. God will not bow down to what we want, okay, um, and, and, you know, compromise uh, his truth, all right? But that, that acceptance of Scripture, even the tough stuff in Scripture, all right, can only come from the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. I want to read a couple quotes in case you guys are like, well, is this just all, you know, Dan's thinking? Is this new, weird doctrine? Where is this coming from? Is this even that important? Uh, I want to read a couple quotes from uh, one from the Westminster Confession of Faith and one from John Calvin in order to understand uh, uh, the importance of this doctrine in the history of the church. All right, the first comes from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So again, the Westminster Confession of Faith is not saying there are not good apologetic arguments for Scripture. It's saying there are very good, and they are abundant, and they abundantly uh, show that the Bible is the Word of God. But then it goes on to say, Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. 
Now, that last phrase can be a little confusing. What does it mean by by and with? What it means is the Holy Spirit is testifying by or through the scriptures. That's, that's where he speaks. He verbally speaks through the scriptures. But he does it with, okay, the scripture in our hearts in the sense that he changes our hearts so that we accept it. There's sort of this twofold action going on that the confession is trying to get at here. There's the inspiration of scripture itself, and then there's the changing of our heart, both of which are primarily the work of the Holy Spirit according to scripture. And through both of those things, we come to see that the Bible is the word of God and we trust in it and through that trust in Christ, okay? All right, next quote from John Calvin, pretty good theologian. He says, and this is in your bulletin, let it therefore be fixed that those who are inwardly taught by the Holy Spirit acquiesce implicitly in Scripture. Really quick, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, The word acquiesce in our culture has sort of come to mean to submit reluctantly or like hesitantly. That's not what Calvin meant. He just meant you you just you you sort of give up your fight against scripture. You submit, you acquiesce to it. Okay? Not not reluctantly and like you don't like it, okay, but the fight that you've had against God is removed once you are regenerated and therefore you simply submit to the authority of Scripture. Uh, Acquiesce implicitly in Scripture. That scripture carrying its own evidence along with it deigns not to submit to proofs and arguments, but owes the conviction with which we ought to receive it to the testimony of the Spirit. Now, don't take what he says about deigns not to submit to proofs and arguments too far. Later on in, in the Institutes, Calvin presents a very convincing apologetic. He gives a lot of external evidences for the scriptures. Or he even talks about internal evidences, all right? He's simply saying that the Bible is not dependent on those types of things. Those things can strengthen our faith. They are sharp weapons when we are arguing, okay, or or, or witnessing to unbelievers, especially those that are particularly hostile to the faith, all right? But the Bible is not dependent upon those things. The Bible carrying its own authority because it is the word of God and it carries the majesty and transcendence of God with it, all right? It is not dependent upon those things. That's what uh, Calvin is getting at here, okay? All right, Let's move to part two, the power of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I want to talk here about doubts, okay, a little bit. Um, doubt has become this really cool thing in the sort of religious world in our country right now, all right? You'll, 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 even amongst Orthodox sort of Bible-believing evangelicals, you'll, you'll see a lot of websites where they'll describe themselves as doubt-filled believers, all right? Um, that's really not a very good saying, okay? It's not very biblical. It's not very orthodox. Now, I'm not saying that we won't have doubts, all right? I have plenty of doubts, and I'll talk about those in a minute, all right? But the Bible never, ever presents doubt as a what? The way that it's so often presented in our culture today, even too much in the church. It's never presented as a virtue. It's never presented as a godly thing, all right? Now, I'm not saying that God is going to smack you over the hammer if you have a doubt. I have a lot of doubts. We're gonna t- I'll talk about that in a minute, all right? But Did Jesus ever command people to doubt? No. He always said, do not doubt. He constantly told the disciples, stop doubting and have what? Faith, okay? So again, doubt is is on some level a sin. Now, it's a sin that God can forgive. It's a sin that God is understanding about. It's a sin that that we can go to God and be forgiven. It's a sin we shouldn't be condemning other people, okay? It's not something that we should glorify. So it's not, it's not a good thing to put on your website, I am a doubt-filled uh, believer. The emphasis should be on faith, okay, and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. That We believe the scriptures. We are believers. We believe in Jesus Christ as he's revealed himself to us in the Bible. That is where the emphasis should be, not upon our doubts. 
Now, having said that, all right, as I talked about a minute ago, I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised in sort of this liberal Protestant. Uh, my mom sort of believed in God, the Bible, okay, but it was, it was all very vague and kind of hazy, and we didn't really go to church much and talk about it. My dad certainly would say he believes Jesus existed and was a great person in the Bible, points to God and Jesus in some way, but it's certainly not the Word of God, or it's certainly not the Word of God from start to finish, all right? In my home, what reigned supreme was logic, was science, was rationality, all right? That anything, anything that even remotely reeked in our culture of something that sounded mythical was suspect, all right? And so you can imagine, or at least I hope you can imagine, that when I started to grapple with God, when I started to grapple with Scripture, there was a lot that I really had a hard time uh, believing. There's a lot, even after walking with Christ for 20 years, I just flat-out struggle. I don't always talk about it very much because, precisely because I don't want to glorify my doubts, all right, that, you know, and it's, it's something I haven't even really talked to my kids about, uh, uh, the extent to which I often struggle uh, with doubt in my faith, because, again, I don't want that to be the emphasis uh, in, in our home, uh, but, again, you know, I have days and I have moments where I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight. I believe, okay, that there was these two people in a garden, okay, and there was this snake, all right, that talked, okay, and tempted them, and there was a donkey that talked, and, you know, there was this big boat, and all the animals came, and, you know, all this stuff, which maybe to you, being raised in a Christian home, maybe these are things that you don't struggle with, and that's awesome, but for me, oh man, hard time, still to this day, very hard time, and the belief that the God of the universe, the God who created everything, that is, is omnipotent, omniscient, that is self-sufficient, all right, uh, that is not in need of anything from you or from me, came to this earth, all right, and allowed himself to be beaten and flogged and mocked and put on a cross, I mean, that, that is, that's tough stuff. That is difficult for me to believe, all right? If that's not something you struggle with as much, awesome, all right? Thank God for that. But that's something I struggle with a lot, all right? Why do I believe those things, all right? Because the Bible teaches them, all right? And I have grown to love those doctrines. Still struggle with them, still have days, all right? I'll sometimes wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I believe what? Okay, and then I pray, and I feel better, and I go back to sleep, okay? And then I read some scripture, and I feel even better, all right? Uh, but again, these are struggles that I have. If you have struggles with doubt, maybe it's in totally different areas. Maybe it's not so much of an intellectual thing, all right? Take it to God. He will give you strength. Come back to the scriptures. He will help you to understand it more and more. But there's always a sense, and we need to remember this, no matter where we are, no matter what culture we're from, we're going to struggle with stuff in the Bible. There are going to be verses that are going to vex you, that you're going to be like, I don't like that, I don't get that, I don't understand that, I want to twist that, I want to make it say this, that, or the other. All right, but what we need to never forget, okay, is that we are sinful, finite human beings, and oftentimes what doesn't make sense to us, okay, makes sense to God, all right? And we need to remember, all right, the Bible is such an amazing thing. It's remarkable it's able to explain as much as it is. I mean, think of how much God has revealed to us. Think of how many precious doctrines we have as Christians, all right? But God revealing himself to sinful, finite human beings, it's like trying to explain, like, quantum physics to an ant. I mean, how do you even do that? I mean, the fact that God is able to do it at all just shows how remarkable and amazing he is. And so, again, don't be surprised when there's things that probably until the day that we die as Christians, there's going to be verses we don't fully understand. We don't totally know how to, to, to work with them and wrap them around our heads and work with the rest of Scripture. Uh, but again, it's about submitting to Scripture. It's God's Word. You're not God. I'm not God. He's God. He tells us what's true. He tells us what's right. He tells us what's wrong. And we submit to that. But again, 
we remember that power, that ability to do that can only come from the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, I don't have a lot of gifts and talents, and I don't mean that genuinely to sound overly humble. I really don't, okay? I I can't sing. I can't dance. My kids will tell you if if you ever force me to do so, you'd run away screaming. Uh, It's an ugly sight, okay? I don't have any artistic ability. Um, I can barely draw stick figures. I mean, I just, again, all right? One thing God has helped me to be... uh, um, I think I have a gift for is, is evangelism. I, I don't struggle to share my faith. Um, I enjoy that very much. Uh, a lot of people will say, I, you know, I just like get so nervous and I freak out. I get really nervous about other things. When we're singing hymns in church, I sing really soft because I'm really nervous someone's going to hear me, all right? Uh, but evangelism, not so much, okay? Um, it's something that I enjoy. Uh, I do face-to-face. I do at work. I, I do it amongst my family. I do it on the internet, okay? I go to blogs. People come to my blog, all right? I, it's something that I enjoy, all right? In the process that, of that, though, all right, and I don't know if this is true of anybody who who's, who's, has the gift of evangelism. If there's others in here who have that, you can come tell me. But I oftentimes get really antagonistic people who sort of flock to me. Not everybody. I'd say 90% of the people are really nice and open and willing to talk and discuss. But boy, there is 10%. They are so antagonistic, all right? And like they flock to me like, you know, those mosquitoes to those lights, all right? Um, I don't know what it is. They just, I don't know if it's because they can tell that I'm willing to, to debate. I'm willing to, to, to go back and forth. I'm not going to back down. I try my best to do what Peter says about be gentle and respectful. I'm not always successful, albeit honest, okay? But I do try really hard. Uh, I'm Irish by blood, all right? I get that from my mom. I'm a feisty guy, all right? So I oftentimes have to kind of restrain myself and hold back, all right? But I attract a lot of antagonistic people, all right? Not people will often say things to me, especially, you know, uh, atheists or agnostics, and I'm not trying to overly pick on them. My brother is an atheist, and I have a really good relationship with him, uh, and we get into some interesting debates and discussions, to say the least, okay? And he's a very intelligent uh, uh, atheist, very highly moral guy. He's a war hero. I have the utmost respect for my brother, okay? So I'm not trying to overly pick on those groups. But again, there are a segment of that population that I would say is very, very antagonistic, okay? And then they like to debate. Oh, man, do they like to debate, all right? One of the primary ways they usually do it is by mocking, all right? I have been cussed at. I have been told what an ignoramus I am. I, you know, all these types of things, all right? And they oftentimes, uh, will, you know, they, they might not be realizing they're doing it, but they're pulling at those strings, those things that I struggle with, those doubts that I struggle with. They'll always go there, all right? It's, it, it's like, it, it really is like spiritual warfare. I mean, they always, you believe, all right, that there's this invisible God that nobody can see, all right, and he just sort of created everything, and we pray to him and worship him even though you can't actually see him. You believe in talking snakes and talking donkeys and all these animals came on the ark, and you believe, okay, that your God came to earth, all right, and, and was whipped and all these types of things. I mean, they'll go on and on. They'll pull at those things that I have uh, doubts about, all right? And man, oh man, there is a part of me that just wants to just, okay, you know, really lash out. Um, part of it is my, like I said, my Irish personality. Um, when I watch sports, it's loud, all right? You can ask my kids, all right? Uh, um, they know. Uh, Jim, who's, who's mellowed out a lot, uh, but he was the loudest child you'd ever met. And I know some of you guys have some loud kids, and you're going to argue with me on that. No, 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 okay? Jim was definitely the loudest child you could ever uh, meet in your entire life, all right? And he loved it when I watched sports. Why? Because it was his excuse to what? 
yell with dad. He knew dad wasn't going to get mad at him, okay? So uh, to this day, uh, when we watch the Warriors, all right, uh, my younger three, they'll yell and scream, okay, and they'll get pretty into it, especially Titus, uh, but not like Jim, okay? To this day, me and Jim, we yell, we scream, we're feisty, all right? That's just sort of our personality, all right? And there are times where people are mocking and stuff like that where I just want to like go at it, all right? So part of it is my personality, but there's another part where it's not just my personality. There's another part, all right, where I am passionate for the word of God. I am passionate for God's truth. And it bothers me, all right, when people mock the word of God. And it should bother you when people mock the word of God. I'm not saying we should be mean and harsh and nasty. We need to be gentle and respectful, as Peter says. So I'm not saying we should act this way, all right? But again, there, is, there are times where people are mocking the word of God to my face. You believe, you know, you know uh, talking animals and invisible spirits and, you know, your, your beliefs are no better than, you know, believing that there are Martians have landed, okay, in Texas or whatever, all right? There are times where, you know, it's like, do you, you really believe in this stuff where I just want to be like, you're darn right I believe in these things, all right? And I'm not ashamed of that I believe in these things. And you know what? I'm obligated to believe these things because when God says something, that's it. End of argument, end of debate. And you know what, sir? You're obligated to believe those things too. Alas, I don't do that, okay? But there are many times, okay, where I want to do that, all right? And all of us, I don't care if you have the gift of evangelism or not. You might be a very shy person. You might not be something that you do on a regular basis, and that's fine. I'm not advocating, okay, that. But there should be a sense in which every single one of us, okay, yes, we should love people. Yes, we should want people to be saved. Yes, we should want people to be in the kingdom, okay? But American evangelicalism is really starting to lose its passion for God, its passion for the Word of God, all right? It's all about what is God going to give me? What is God going to do for me? And it's all about how can I pacify the people in my community so that I can get them into the church doors, all right? Oftentimes, all right, that doesn't really save people, okay? And even if it does, all right, it doesn't always glorify God, all right? We should be passionate about God first and foremost. Yes, we should be passionate about people. Yes, we want to see the kingdom grown. Yes, we want to see people saved. But our first priority is always the glory of God. And every true saved individual should have that passion uh, within them. And again, that can only come from the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Okay, a lot of times people will say, you know, this is a a lot of emphasis on Scripture, all right? I mean, shouldn't the emphasis be on Jesus? Of course. Again, don't get me wrong. Obviously, like I just said, the emphasis should be God and Scripture. But oftentimes Protestants, okay, get accused of overemphasizing Scripture, okay? Does anyone know, know what word is oftentimes used of Protestants? Yeah, bibliolatry. Is that what you said? Yeah, bibliolatry, okay? That we worship the Bible, all right? And I want to say to you, that is nonsense, all right? People in the Middle Ages sometimes worship the Bible. They would hold it up on the stand, and they would walk it down. I mean, a lot of Catholic churches still do this, okay? All right, and the people would sort of, you know, look up to it in reverence, many of whom would never read it, all right? That's bibliolatry, okay? We don't sing hymns to the Bible. We don't pray to the Bible, all right? We don't put it on this pedestal and walk it through the church and be like all in awe of it, all right? So we're not engaging in bibliolatry, all right? Make no mistake about it, all right? Singing hymns to God, super important, super amazing, okay? I oftentimes listen to hymns on my own, not just in church. Uh, Fellowship with each other, praying, all right? The sacraments, I could talk about all these things. These are amazing things. These are amazing means of drawing closer to God. 
over and over and over again in the Bible itself, it says the primary way we have communion with God, the primary way we know God, the primary way we grow in our relationship with God is through Scripture. That might not be the world's way. That might not make a lot of sense to the world. That might seem really boring. It's just a bunch of words, okay? But that is God's way. Is we, the way we primarily have communion with God is through the Word of God, is through Scripture. And make no mistake about it, I'm going over church history in the Sunday school class. I've been studying church history for t- uh, 20 years. I really enjoy that. Whenever the church emphasizes the Bible, whenever the church puts the Bible, okay, uh, on a figurative pedestal, not a literal, okay, a pedestal, um, The church is always the strongest, the church is always the healthiest, and people are always the most in love with Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. The two are absolutely inextricably linked, all right? The more you know Scripture, I promise you, the closer you're going to be with Christ, all right? It is almost impossible. Not impossible. You can take things too far. Don't get me wrong. But I'm telling you, it's almost impossible to overemphasize Scripture. Protestants used to be known as what? Does anyone know what the, the phrase that people used of Protestants? Protestants used it of themselves in a good way. Other people used it in a pejorative way. Does anyone know what the phrase was? Okay. People of the what? People of the book. Okay. People of the book. All right? That is what we were known as. All right? That was our emphasis. That was our calling card okay, to fame. All right? You don't hear a lot of people say that about evangelicals anymore. Okay? You might say, yeah, they believe in the Bible, whatever. Okay? Uh, but again, we've oftentimes gotten very distracted into a lot of other silly things. All right? And we need to come back to our focus uh, upon Scripture. All right? And again, that, that passion for the Word of God, that desire for the Word of God, the desire to know Jesus Christ more can only come from the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think of what the Bible says, all right? How does the Bible describe uh, Scripture itself, okay? It calls it our what? Our food, okay? Our bread, our drink, all right? That's like saying, you know, you know I, I really want to hang out with my kids, okay, but I'm really not that into eating, okay? Well, again, after a while, if I don't eat, what happens? I starve to death, and am I going to hang out with my kids that much at that point? No, okay? This idea that you can have a relationship with Christ and not be immersed in Scripture, it just doesn't work, okay? It's your food, and if you starve yourself from it, okay, that really shows that you never were truly saved, and the more you neglect Scripture, okay, just like a person who is not eating very well, okay, the more you're going to be spiritually starved, all right? So again, it, it, it's, it can be done, don't get me wrong, but it is very difficult to overemphasize Scripture. Again, read Scripture, study Scripture, know Scripture, all right, and through that, you will be drawn closer to Jesus. <clears throat> all right. Um, next thing I want to talk about really quick is the preciousness of the testimony of, of the internal testimony. I'll go through this quick. The parable of the sower. Jesus talks about four different types of people, okay, all right, and out of those four different types, how many people actually receive the seed, receive the word of God, and produce, okay, a good crop? How many? Only one, okay, only a quarter, 25%, all right, and that's only, okay, where the word of God is even preached, all right? We need to understand, okay, Jesus said, all right, the path to righteousness is what? Okay, narrow, and few people choose it. The path to destruction is what? Broad, and most people go down it, all right? God in his wisdom, and this is another difficult doctrine, one of those tough doctrines, God has not chosen to save a large mass of humanity, 
all right? And that's a tough one. It's a very difficult one, all right? But if you are saved, if you are of the elect, elect, if you have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, don't ever forget what a privilege and what a blessing that is. You are one of the few. You are a quarter of the people, and that's only even amongst where the Word of God is even preached, okay? And we should be on our knees thanking God every day that He changed our heart, that He made us that good soil, that we would receive the word of God and we would receive it with gladness, with passion, all right, and with joy, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Real quick, on part two and part three, I'll be faster, I promise. <laughs> um, it's not as hard, hot as last week, so I uh, hope you guys are hanging in there. Uh, we need a sure word from God. We all struggle. We all go through difficult things, all right? We can't pay our bills when our kids are rebelling, when, you know, uh, we're having difficult time with family members, when work sucks, uh, when you lose your job, all right, uh, when you are diagnosed with cancer, okay, or something worse or something horrible, we need a sure word of God. We don't need a maybe. We don't need a hope so. We need God to speak to us, and we need to know that it is, in fact, God who is actually speaking to us, all right, and that is so important to remember. The internal testament of the Holy Spirit tells us the Bible is not maybe word of God. I hope it's the word of God. It is the word of God, all right? <clears throat> okay, part three, applying the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. First thing I would say, just to reiterate what I said earlier, drawing closer to God. It is the primary way we have a relationship with God. It is the primary way we draw closer uh, to Him, all right? Uh, preaching the gospel, all right? It gives us the confidence, okay, that this is the Word of God, and even if people don't see it, okay, we can know, all right, that God has given a ton of evidence for it, and we can present that to unbelievers, and we can be confident, all right, that God will vindicate His Word, and that ultimately, it's not your responsibility, it's not my responsibility to save somebody. It's my responsibility to preach the gospel, but whose responsibility is it to save somebody if He so wills? God, okay, the Holy Spirit, all right? Um, the last thing I would say, okay, is dealing with those doubts. All Christians deep down, deep down in their soul, if you're truly saved, you know that the Bible is the Word of God, as I talked about. You have, as John said, you possess the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. But on the surface, in our flesh, that's a different story. We can struggle with those doubts. We can have times where we're not sure we believe in the Word of God or all of the Word of God or some of the difficult parts uh, of the Word of God, all right? Go to Christ, okay? It always comes back to the gospel. Everything always comes back to the gospel. Don't try to do it in your own strength. Go to Christ. Pray for the strength, okay, to have stronger faith. Remember, okay, the, the man who said to Jesus, I do have faith, all right? I do have faith. But then what did he say? He qualified it. What did he say? Help my unbelief. Do you see this dichotomy exists in Scripture? And I don't totally know how to explain this philosophically or psychologically, but it's biblical. It exists. I believe, yet, Lord, help my unbelief. And that should be the prayer of all of us. We always need to be going back to Christ, not trying to do it in our own strength, going to Him, all right, to, to be, um, have those doubts lessened and, and hopefully more and more erased as we grow uh, in Him. Okay? And again, you know, none of us are ever going to believe Scripture as strongly as we should. All right, we're going to falter just like the disciples did, okay? Peter had faith for a while when he's walking on the water and then it didn't go so well. We're going to have those moments. We are going to sin. We are going to fail. 
all right? And then we always bring it back uh, to the gospel. When you're struggling with those doubts, when you're struggling with feeling like you're sinning because you don't have enough faith, all right, you don't do what the word of faith preachers teach and just find it in yourself to just have more faith. And if you don't, you're guilty and God's gonna punish you. No, okay, that's not the answer. The answer is the gospel, okay? Remember who you are in Christ, all right? Does God require perfect faith for us to be saved? No, not even close. What did Jesus say? As long as you have faith, as small as what? Mustard seed. That's all it takes. It's got to be real. It's got to be true. But it doesn't have to be overwhelmingly powerful, okay, especially when we're first saved, all right? The faith of a mustard seed, all right? You don't save yourself, and we are not even saved by faith, all right? We don't have faith in faith. All right? We have faith in Christ. We look away from ourselves. We look to Christ. We look to his work upon the cross, and we look upon his righteousness, which is imputed to us, and we take comfort in that. Our faith is going to be like this. It's going to waver. It's going to be all up and down, and we're going to have moments of extreme guilt and doubt, and we need to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. Right? And then as I said, all right, uh, go to Jesus and ask him for help. Don't try to do it in your own strength. Ask him for forgiveness ask him for strength, ask him to strengthen uh, the, the testimony of the Holy Spirit within you uh, so that you can uh, have those doubts lessened and you can draw closer and closer to him, all right? And then again, on a practical level, once we've done that, not in our own strength, we've gone to Christ, all right, on a practical level, read scripture, study scripture, and again, ask questions. So many Christians, I find, just don't ask enough questions. If you're struggling with something, go to a pastor. Go to somebody who, who really uh, you have confidence in, all right? Talk to them, all right? study some apologetics. You don't need to be an expert. You don't need to, you know, be, you know, uh, know all the answers, okay? But study those things. I promise you, they will confirm your faith. They will strengthen your faith. They will build up your faith. At first, when we're first saved, the Bible can seem very difficult to believe. But the more you study the evidence for Scripture, uh, the more um, amazing it is and how much superior it stands to all other uh, viewpoints, okay? I'll just give you one example, okay? Take one of the most major religions in the world, Islam, all right? Huge, all right? Uh, one of the, the largest religions in the world. You could even argue if you break down, you know, professing Christianity into different groups, it's the largest religion in the world, all right? Islam teaches, all right, that the scriptures have been woefully corrupted, woefully corrupted, that the Jews corrupted the Old Testament and the Christians corrupted the New Testament. If you ever study textual criticism, it's a historic fact. And by the way, not just because I'm a biased as a Christian, atheists admit that. Does anyone know who the biggest atheist apologist is right now? I think somebody said it. Bart Ehrman, thank you very much, Scott. Bart Ehrman, okay? And even Bart Ehrman admits that the textual um, credibility of Scripture is overwhelming. He nitpicks over like three or four verses that he's like, Christians totally corrupted these. But at the end of the day, he can only point to like three or four verses. All right, that doesn't make that big of a deal. All right, so again, if you study apologetics, you don't have to be this expert. You'll find that the Bible stands so much taller than anything else. All right, right there, you've proven that Islam, all right, is false. All right, that it says the Bible has been woefully corrupted, and we know as a matter of fact that it has not. And you could go down any other worldview and do the same thing. And I'm telling you, if you do that, all right, it really, really can build up your faith. All right, that we don't just believe in mythical things, we don't just believe in talking animals and invisible spirits, that there is immense evidence for Scripture. But again, only do that after you've gone to Christ. Don't try to do it in your own means. Always come back to Christ and allow him to be the one uh, to give you the strength. Always bring it back uh, to the gospel. Okay? 
All right, thank you guys so much. Man, you guys are, are tolerant people. It was hot in here today, way better than last week. Again, um, I felt so bad for Pastor. That was rough. <laughs> I felt kind of sick after the service last week just from teaching the class and then being in here. I was like, if, if I had had to preach last week, I probably would have fallen off the stage. But um, uh, thank you guys so much. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for its power. Thank you so much for what it does for us. Um, I pray, God, that you would just give us more and more of your testimony that comes from your Holy Spirit, that we would not glory in our doubts, that we would recognize our doubts, that we would confess our doubts, that we would admit them, but that we would not wallow in them, Lord, that we would seek greater and greater faith uh, in you um, and that you would strengthen our faith in your word and strengthen our relationship with you. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. We thank you for coming to this earth, for dying for us, um, for rising from the dead for us, and for sending your Holy Spirit to change our hearts and to cause us to see the beauty and the glory and the grandeur and the wonder of your word. We thank you, God, so much for all that you give us, and we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>